0: Alright, good morning River City. Uh, did anyone else notice in the video as Jason was wrapping up he said I think Cecil's continuing in Esther so um, evidently that means I don't have to. We're just gonna do our own thing. We're in Ecclesiastes this morning and uh, no, I'm just kidding. We're definitely continuing with our series Esther as you see there from the the screen. Um, Jason's already done a couple of weeks and I'm picking up kind of where he left off. We'll be in Esther chapter three this morning. Actually we'll start in the end of chapter two if you want to go ahead and Get your uh, Bibles, your smartphones ready for that. They are going to have the verses up on the screen. Um, but but we're going to pick up after he left off. He's been doing a great job, and it's actually kind of good to hear multiple takes on the same story. Sometimes, um, you know. So I get to I get to share a little bit about the overall story of Esther, and he's going to be doing um, that more when he comes back. But um, it's kind of like you know the Gospels, right? We got four different stories at the beginning of the New Testament, written by four different guys. But it's all the same account. Of the life of Christ, and so sometimes it's good to hear a different perspective, and you get some different details. and And so I'm going to pick up where he left off, and talk about this book Esther, which has been it's kind of an ambiguous book about what's going on sometimes, and the the morality of the people and their motives and their reasons. They don't really share a lot about why they're doing what they do. And Jason has mentioned they don't even really mention the uh, they don't use the name of God at all in the entire book. Um, it, it is looked at by a lot of historians and a lot of people who teach from it as a very romantic story and but you know I, I actually kind of look at it as a reflection of a real Normal just an average group of people trying to make it in a world that they did not create that they did not necessarily choose for themselves um, people trying to just raise their families make a living and 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 get by kind of like a lot of us do day by day In week one Jason shared a lot of relevant and really important history about kind of what led up to this. If you missed that, you can get it on iTunes. It's available for download, you can get it on the website. We have CDs available if you can't uh, access either of those. But you need to kind of understand the history. And I'm gonna gonna do like just a quick 45 second recap of where we are historically. Um, Esther is the story of a group of Jews, people from the nation of Israel, Israelites, God's chosen people. They've kind of come out of some hard times recently. Going all the way back to, um, you know, this is past the time of kings, after King Saul and King David and King Solomon. This is after all that. The nation of Israel has fallen. They were actually uh, taken into captivity for a while in uh, the Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonian king had, uh, you know, held them in captivity, and the Babylonians eventually fell to the Persians in like 539 BC. The Persians come in, and things change a little bit for the Israelites. Um, they actually allowed the captives to own land and to rise to positions and to accumulate wealth. And under a Persian king named Cyrus, he actually decided that everybody who had been held captive would be allowed to leave and return to their homeland. And so during this time, some of the Jews did. Some of the Israelites decided, we're getting out of here, we're going back to Judah. Uh, But some of them chose to remain in the region of Persia um, because they had built lives. And, and started to accumulate things, and that's where their families are. So Esther is in this setting, right, under, under King Xerxes at the time, and there's a group of Jews living in a region called Susa, and they're living there, basically, the Bible, by all indications, as we read the story, they still hold on to their faith, they still fast, they still do some things that indicate to us that they're still practicing Jews, that they're still serving God, even though we don't really hear God mentioned but it still shows us that by all accounts they are still living as as devout and god-fearing Jews. Um, they however are looked down upon by the Jews that left. The uh, the Israelites who decided, you know what, we're out of here. We're 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 heading out. They kind of look down on the ones who stayed. And they're like, "You know what? If you really love God, you wouldn't stick around there. You know, they don't, they don't they don't worship the way you do. They don't believe the way you do. You should have got out with us and come back to Judah." But but these are these are families that have decided to stay. So in this setting, we learn about Esther and her uncle Mordecai. Mordecai has taken in Esther to live as his own. He's her uncle, and, and they are Jews, and Mordecai has, has been instructing Esther all along to kind of not reveal who they are. They're trying not to make a big deal about the fact that their background doesn't really blend well with the Persians, that they don't believe the same things religiously, and so they're trying to kind of keep quiet. So last week, um, or actually the first week, Jason kind of opened up the story in Esther chapter one where where King Xerxes has asked Vashti, his queen, to come out and to give a display of how beautiful she is. And she's not feeling it today. She's having a bad hair day, and she doesn't want to come out and, and do this. And so he's upset, so he removes her. She's been deposed as queen. And, and um, this is where Esther comes in, because uh, King Xerxes has a queen-size hole in his heart, and he needs someone to fill it. And so he puts out this thing that all these virgins are going to be brought in, and he's going to find the one that he likes, and Esther happens to be one Of the girls that comes in to to be presented to King Xerxes and you found out from from Jason's sermon she was chosen he actually chose her over all these other women Jason brought us to the point last week where where Esther has actually been elevated as queen of the Persian Empire alongside King Xerxes this is after he chose her for her beauty and um, in the Bible's words because she pleased him more than any of the other women despite your feelings about how all of this came about, in in Esther chapter 2, verse 17, it says this, the king loved Esther more than all the women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown upon her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. Now, if this was a fairy tale, this would be the end of it, right? Rags to riches story. A girl brought out from poverty, brought into the palace. The king chooses her. She's the new queen. And that should be the end of the story. And we should be watching Disney movies about it and, and having little girls dress up like Esther for Halloween. And, and it's just it doesn't really end there. Um, because the, the story goes on that things actually get a little worse from there. The plot thickens. And so in chapter 2, verse 19, it says this. Even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem, these are all the other women that that King Xerxes did not choose, and Mordecai had become a palace official, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. It's important to know that Mordecai had a position in the palace. Um, It says there in that translation, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Mordecai actually... Finds a way to. He's kind of a shrewd guy, right? He knows the reason that they need to keep quiet because he doesn't want their nationality to be held against them and prevent them from working, having jobs. Could have prevented Esther from being a queen, so he's kept it quiet and he has actually gained position of authority within the palace. It says she was still following Mordecai's directions just as she did when she lived in his home. So Mordecai is is being wise and shrewd, saying, "Let's kind of keep this." under our hats and not tell everybody what our background is. They're still not looked upon with great respect by other people living in the region, and we're going to see why this plays out later on. Let me wrap up the end of chapter 2 before we dive into 3. 3 is what we're going to be spending the bulk of our time on today. But the end of chapter 2, after Mordecai gets this position, Esther's the queen, Mordecai actually hears of a plot to assassinate the king. There are these two eunuchs who are guards. They become angry at King Xerxes, probably because he's made them eunuchs. And and so they have this plot to assassinate the king and Mordecai hears about it he reports it back to Esther Esther tells the king the king and she gives Mordecai the credit and so this is how we end chapter 2 with Mordecai having just potentially saved the life of King Xerxes by reporting this assassination attempt and so you would think the next logical step in the progression is that maybe he'll be rewarded maybe he'll be promoted maybe some big things are ahead for Mordecai. But at the beginning of chapter 3, which is where we're going to start reading today, Esther chapter 3, verse 1, right after Mordecai does this great thing, it says, Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted, by the way, that's a different translation, but it's the same king, King Ahasuerus. Uh, it's easier to say Xerxes, so I'm going to stick with that. Same guy, though. He promoted not Mordecai, but he promoted Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So basically, Xerxes is like, good job, thanks for saving my life. I got my boy Haman over here. We're going to put him over all the other palace officials and make him the most powerful official in the empire. And it says in verse 2 that all the king's officials then would bow down to Haman every time he passed by them, for so the king commanded. So the king has this command, I'm going to promote him, and by the way, when you're around him, you need to bow to him. But Mordecai refused to bow. He did not want to show him respect. And here's where I would have liked to have preached the sermon that says even though Mordecai is, is kind of being quiet about his nationality, he's blending in culturally so that he might continue to raise his family and still worship God. This is the point at which he's drawn the line. That's what I wanted to preach, just to be perfectly honest with you. That's the direction I was going to say all of us, no matter what it is in life, we've got to fit in with our culture. We, we've got to live in this world and we've got to make A living but all of us should have a point at which we draw the line and say you know what because of my God I will not bow before any other man and I wanted that to be my sermon but however as I read this and as I studied this and I started reading um, commentaries um, and and things by Bible scholars who uh, are much smarter than I am I found out that's not probably the reason that he didn't bow as a matter of fact um, all throughout the rest of the Bible there are people who not bowing before another god but just as a sign of respect would bow to other people as a sign of respect people bowed um, you know all throughout the old testament new testament to officials who were above them just as a sign of respect and so it's not necessarily a faith issue that mordecai has with bowing to haman so what is it really i think it's that mordecai must know something about this man Haman which persuades him that Haman is not a man worthy of such an honor to be bowed to and maybe it's simply his ancestry see because as as Mordecai and Esther and all the Jews they don't want anybody to know who they are Haman has no such uh, issue sharing who he is as a matter of fact when he's introduced it says he is Haman the Agagite the Agagite here's why that's important I'm gonna give you a little more context and just a little bit of history before we jump back in. So hang on with me, it's really important, it's actually really interesting if you understand this. Haman the Agagite, which means he's a descendant of Agag. Agag was king of a race of people called the Amalekites. Have You ever heard of the Amalekites? Uh, Jason will call them the Amalekites, I say Amalekites, potato, potato, I'm right, he's wrong, but whatever. Amalekites are this nasty, particularly nasty, ruthless group of people and they hated the Israelites. They wanted to wipe out and destroy the Jews. Um, they hated God. Their hearts had turned cold, the Bible said. They had turned away from God, and they were pretty much as anti-God as you could get. If you're um, growing up in this time frame, these several hundred years, the, the, the Jews, the Israelites, God's chosen people, you don't like to hang around people like Pharaoh. You are wary of the Philistines, but beyond all of those, they say the Amalekites were probably the worst and the most ruthless of all of them. The Amalekites attacked the Israelites as they were fleeing from Egypt at their lowest, most defenseless point, the Bible says. So, so this is a group of people that made it their living, their entire purpose in life. We want to wipe those guys out because they worship God. God, of course, remember in the Old Testament, there were times that, that, that his people, he would command them to wage war against the people who were trying to take him out. And so he did this. As a matter of fact... During the time of the kings, hold with me, we're almost through with the history, but this is really important right here, check this out. During the time of the kings, the first king of the nation of Israel, when they had risen to to the point of being a nation and they appointed a king, the first king was Saul. King Saul started out as a very good king, but he made several bad decisions that left him historically as a terrible king. Probably one of his worst decisions was when God said to Saul, hey listen, I'm going to deliver the Amalekites into your hands and I want you to go wipe them out. I want you to remove the things from the face of the earth that are trying to prevent you from living for me and from doing what I want you to do. So in this case, it was the Amalekites. God said, they're they're so stone cold turned against us, you're gonna wipe out every man, woman, child, every sheep, every goat, every lamb, every kitty cat, whatever you find living there that's breathing, wipe it out. The Amalekites are going to be removed from the face of the earth. King Saul goes and he, he wages war and he, he takes an army in and they do they wipe out the Amalekites but Saul in his wisdom decides I'm going to do something that I choose to do rather than what God has asked me to do I'm going to hold on to a little bit and I'm going to take the king of the Amalekites and we're going to keep him alive and that guy's name was Agag. Agag. Agag is the guy who we just found out at the beginning of Esther he's the ancestor of Haman. So because Saul made this decision to disobey God, to hold on to something he shouldn't have held on to, to keep him alive, Haman exists. He shouldn't have even been here, right? So boom, full circle. Haman's here in this story as a direct result of Saul disobeying God generations before. And remember, Haman's not hiding who he is. Everyone knows who he is. He's known as Haman the Agagite, Agag, former king of the Amalekites. And so Mordecai decides no self-respecting Benjamite would bow before an Amalekite. I'm not bowing to that guy. He's an Amalekite. We just don't do that. And so he's got a little bit of righteous indignation going on. And so the trouble begins in verse 3. It says, the palace officials asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? You just got to bow to this guy when he walks by. What's the big deal? And you start to think maybe these are Maybe these are Mordecai's friends. Maybe they're just concerned about his well-being. So it says they spoke to him in verse 4. They spoke to him day after day. But he refused to comply with the order. So they did what any good friends would do. They went and told the boss. So they went to Haman and said, Haman, are you just going to let this happen with Mordecai? Are Are you cool with this? He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's not bowing to you. And by the way... Hey, Mordecai had told these two guys that he's a Jew. Oops, not such good friends. Turns out they're tattletales. They're troublemakers. And these are the guys, remember Mordecai's the guy that's really careful. He's not letting anyone know his, his background. He's not letting anyone know he's a Jew except these two guys. Have you ever found in your life, I trusted the wrong people? All this time, all this time, I was keeping quiet. I wasn't sharing anything. And somewhere, maybe over a coffee break, he looks over these guys, and he's like, you don't seem like such bad guys. Guess what? I'm a Jew. And they're like, what? Really, you're a Jew? He's like, yeah, I promise I'm a Jew. And I'm a palace official. Isn't that crazy? Don't tell anybody. Yeah, yeah, no problem. We won't tell anybody. Haman, that guy's not bowing before you? Yeah, he's a Jew. So in verse 5, it says, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He was furious this guy's not bowing before me in verse 6 it says he had learned of Mordecai's nationality wonder where he found that out so he decided it was not enough to just lay hands on Mordecai he's not just going to exact his revenge against the person who has disrespected him as most of us would probably be inclined to do right he's not just gonna strike back at the man who's not bowing. He decides, well, he's a Jew. So here's what we're going to do. I'm gonna find a way to destroy all the Jews, his entire people throughout the entire kingdom. Now you might think that that's just an overreaction to the fact that one person didn't bow until you remember the, the history lesson that we just had. He doesn't just hate Mordecai because he's not bowing. He already hates him just because he's a Jew. Now he's found out this guy's a Jew. That means all of his family are Jews. Let's get rid of all of them. So he finds a way to plot to destroy the entire Jewish people. It says in verse 7, so in the month of April, the 12th year of King Xerxes reign, um, here's, let me summarize this plot for the next couple of verses. He decides, what are we going to do? So they decide to cast lots to find out when should we take action? When should we strike against the Jewish people? So they cast lots because that's the great way to decide things. You roll dice, you figure out what it says. This is the month, this is the year, and this is how we're going to make our decision because we're really important people in a kingdom. And so they cast the lots until they find out uh, month after month, till the twelfth month, it's going to end up being like March seventh. Okay, so here we are in this year, and next year in March, we're going to just go kill all of the Jews. But we got to make sure that King Xerxes is okay with this. So in verse eight, um, Haman goes to Xerxes. He's like, "Listen, I found out something that you need to know. There's this guy named Haman, or this is guy named Mordecai, and him and all his people, they're different from us." They're scattered abroad amongst your kingdom. They're dispersed amongst the people, it says. Their laws are very different from our laws. They don't believe the same things we believe. They don't worship the same way we worship it's saying. And so he goes on to say, by the way, they don't even obey your laws, king. Now this isn't true, first of all. You got one guy who didn't bow, but but Haman's taking it upon himself to say, hey man, he wouldn't bow. They're just troublemakers. It's not in your profit to tolerate them, that verse says. He's basically saying, we got to get rid of these guys. It's not in your best interest to let them live. Remember, Mordecai up to this point had been a loyal, a law-keeping citizen and a palace official. He just saved the king's life. The Jewish people are not against King Xerxes at this point. They're trying to continue to live there, to make a living, but, but Haman goes, and because of one bad person of influence coming to the king saying... We need to get rid of them. He says in verse 9, if it pleases you, king, here's what we're going to have to do. You should issue a decree that says that they will be destroyed. We just got to wipe them out. They're like vermin. They need to be eliminated. And I'm going to pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, and they can do with it whatever they want in the royal treasury. The king, having no real interest in this whole drama, says to Haman, okay, fine, we can do it. So he took the signet ring from his hand, he gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the Amalekite, the son of Hamadatha, and the enemy of the Jews, and now the Jews' fate has been sealed, it seems. King Xerxes probably had no idea what he just agreed to. He probably just believed that he's merely saying, okay, let's just execute a handful of dangerous revolutionaries in the kingdom, but there are no such things. Verse 12, it says, so on April 17th, the king's secretaries were summoned almost a year before the date they're supposed to die. The decree was written, just like he said, that all the Jews would be eliminated on March 7th the following year, and they send the word out to all the Jewish people. Basically, it's like you open up your email one morning and says, you know, you got a calendar reminder for March 7th of next year, you're going to die. Go ahead and mark it down. So they get to know in advance what's coming, and um, programmed in my smartphone, remind me in two weeks in advance so I know what to be ready that day. And um, they're going to die next year. Then it says at the very end of the chapter that uh, that Xerxes and Haman they get together and they have a drink. And the chapter ends. Chapter three ends with saying these two guys are having a drink, and the rest of the region of Susa has fallen into confusion. So Jason left us with a great story, this fairy tale ending, where Esther has been promoted to queen, and I come in and I wreck everything, and now the entire race of Jews is going to be eliminated from the region of Susa just because Mordecai wouldn't bow. Just like it happens in real life, we've been throwing a curveball. Have you ever felt like everything was going fine, things are starting to look up, I just got the job, you know, I'm getting promoter, or I'm moving, or, or I just got into this relationship, everything seems great, and then all of a sudden one day you wake up and you're like, how did I find myself here? When did this happen? How did things fall off? When did the wheels come off of the rails? What has happened in my life? It says that the entire city of Susa fell into confusion because, honestly, they don't even know what's happened. They weren't part of the whole deal with, with Mordecai and Haman and the bowing and the not bowing. and, like, Basically, they're just at home, and they get this proclamation that says, yeah, you're going to die. Some days our our, our our days feel like that. Where did this come from? What, what's happened? How did things fall apart so quickly? And we find ourselves kind of getting this in real life, a true example of when... Bad things happen to good people. We ask that question all the time, right? God, why do you allow bad things to happen to good people? And so this chapter closes with an entire group of people being told, "You're going to be killed," but it's next year. So, so let's recap. Mordecai trying to do good, you know, got a job, working hard, providing for his family, saved the king's life. Haman gets the promotion. Mordecai is passed over when probably he should have been uh, rewarded. And now the Jewish people are being attacked unfairly for something they didn't even do. And I'm going I'm to make you a, a promise that's probably not going to sound like it's a great promise, but it's, it's true and it's biblical. In your life, there are going to be days when you feel like you're being attacked and you're going to feel like it's unfair and you're going to feel like there's no reason for this and you don't understand why it's happening. and You're going to feel like the world is against you and things are unfair. Bad things are going to happen in our lives. And that doesn't seem like a great thing to say during a sermon, and it's fortunately not my closing point, but but it's a truth that's revealed time and time again in the, in the, in the Word of God. I love that the Bible isn't silent on the fact that following God is the right thing to do, and, and living for Christ, as we have the opportunity to do now, is the way to go. But it doesn't mean that we're... Eliminated from this world immediately so that we don't have to face the difficulty of living here There's a lot of things that we're dealing with that continue to plague us because of things that happened long before we came along We're living in a fallen world and the Bible says um, Rejoice when you face troubles of many kinds, right? It doesn't say that hey follow Christ and everything's rosy Here's the promise and the reason that Christ's coming is the good news, because Christ promises us a better life, even today, because what he says is even though you're going to face difficulties, I'll see you through, I won't leave you, I'll guide you, I'll direct you, I'll help you through these times, and I will give you a better life as you endure the rest of your time left here and co-save as many people as you can along the way, and then we get to spend eternity together where there's no more of this garbage going on that you have to deal with. But until then, let's work together, let's get in the same boat, and let's bring as many people in here with us as we can. It still might be stormy, it still might be difficult, but we're going to make it. And so so the promise that we get and the truth that we see out of this chapter is that no matter how hard you're trying or no matter what you're doing, there's going to be days where you feel like, I'm being attacked. And so I have two observations that I want to share from this chapter that I think are going to help us relate to what... Mordecai and what Esther is going through Haman as, as the, the final player in, in, this, in this book of Esther, the, kind of the final major player in the story Haman comes along and he actually represents to us two different kinds of attacks that we face in our lives and so the first is this, number one we will be attacked by things that are our fault I want you to think about this thought. We're going to be attacked by things that are our fault. We can be catalysts for good or for bad in our lives and the lives of the people around us, all right? We can be a catalyst for good or for bad, for better or for worse in the lives of of us and the people around us. And so as we're attacked by things that are our fault, think about um, the fact that sometimes we have done things that directly led us to the situation that we're in, and we can look back and say, Where did I go wrong? Or did I do the right thing and it's brought trouble about and it was worth it? Because here's here's the truth. When Mordecai refused to bow, whatever the reason was, whatever his motivation, he became a catalyst that set some other things in motion in this story. Sometimes we make decisions and they're born out of a righteous indignation. We feel like we're doing the right thing and we decide to take a stand. We decide to, to stand up. We decided to stand against whatever it is. We decide... There are often in our lives times that we have done something that leads directly to the situation we find ourselves in, and often we don't like where we are, but the truth is this path leads this direction, point A often leads to point B, and we've got to start to understand my actions, I have to take responsibility for what I've done and make sure that I'm choosing the right thing when I get the chance. Let's take it even further back. Let's take this all the way back to King Saul, the history lesson that I shared. King Saul, first first king of the Israelites, what does he decide to do when God says wipe out the Amalekites? He decides to go against God's word. He holds on to King Agag and he says, let me keep him alive for whatever reason that motivation might have been. I want to hold on to this. And how many times in our lives have we held on to something that maybe we shouldn't have held on to, even though God told us get rid of this? And that decision haunts us years later. The really frustrating thing is about holding on to things we shouldn't and disobeying God and keeping things in our life and allowing things to live in our lives that we know we should have gotten rid of. The really frustrating thing about that is you're not just hurting yourself, you're hurting your kids. And you could be hurting their kids. Listen, everything you're going through right now, I I, I don't mean to to sound depressing about why we have bad things, but you can blame most of it on somebody else, right? Let's look all the way back to the very beginning. Ladies, I always hear that childbirth is an extremely excruciating process, and I don't ever want to have to experience that, but you know who you have to thank? Adam and Eve. Because God said after that, you know what, childbirth is going to be a pain. Sorry, that's the way it is. Um, the fact that we have to labor and toil and work for a living and, and, and you know, put our bodies through all of this difficulty, Adam and Eve. As a matter of fact, biblically, all of the bad things that have happened, we start to see... Um, Bad repercussions for all of the bad decisions that people before us have made God could have created us and said You know what? You're going to live this way We're gonna put this tree over here, but I'm not gonna give you the free will to go take a bite of that apple And You're never gonna do anything bad. You're gonna come to church every Sunday We're gonna live wonderful lives. and We're all gonna be happy But God said you know what in my plan here's my will for you and here's what I want you to do But here's an option Please don't choose that option. It's bad. It's gonna. It's gonna do harm You're not gonna be happy later on and what do we do as people? We do it anyway and so from the very beginning of time, God gave us this option, and for, for thousands of years, what have we been doing? We've been doing exactly the opposite of what God says we should do, and so you guys are paying the price for people before you who have made bad decisions by the billions, trillions bigger than our deficit, bad decisions, and we're paying the price. So here's what we could do as a people. We could say, well, it's not my fault. I didn't take a bite of the apple, or we could take responsibility for where we are and say, when is it gonna stop? When am I gonna stop making bad decisions that affect the people that come behind me? When will I start doing what God wants me to do so that perhaps my children's lives might be better instead of worse? You are the catalyst for good or bad, not only for your life, but for the lives of people around you, and that includes your children and your grandchildren that you don't even know yet, maybe, and their children. You have the ability to impact your future and your kids' future for better or for worse and which will you decide to do because there are some of you guys that are holding on to something in your life that's been plaguing you for years and you wouldn't have had to suffer through some of the things you've suffered through if you would have gotten rid of whatever it is God told you to get rid of. Stop holding on to the King Agag in your life and say, God, I know that I need to get rid of that. We're facing financial difficulties because of bad decisions we made long ago and we refuse to stop and we refuse to let go. We're facing marriage issues. We're facing addictions. There are, there are people that are they're dealing with things today because of a decision you made a long time ago. And it's not just messing up your future. Figure out what it is in your life, God. What is it that I need to remove? What do I need to kill? What do I need to get rid of and pull out of my life? The second level of attack that Haman represents Is this we will be attacked by things that aren't our fault there are times that it's just beyond our control there's nothing we can do about it there are things as I said you're dealing with not because of a direct um, decision by you but there are things that are beyond your level of control And, and unfortunately that's that's a truth in life Mordecai had done the right thing he had lived a good life and he wasn't promoted he was doing everything right up to that point he should not have even been in the situation that he was in if life was fair right but life is not always fair. The Jewish people didn't even have anything to do with this whole bowing and not bowing thing, right? We said that. They didn't they weren't even there. Yet they're being punished over a situation that doesn't even make sense to them. There'll be days that you're gonna feel the same way. Like I, I don't know why I'm going through what I'm going through, I don't know what I've done, I don't know what I could have done wrong, and so so there are days you've got to take responsibility for the decisions you made, but there are there are days when It's just going to be beyond your control, and so my best advice to you there is to understand that when things are beyond your control, it's never beyond God's control, and God promises you, if you just hold on to him in those moments, he still has a plan, and he's still in control, and maybe he's already putting people in place that somewhere down the line, if you continue to stick with him and trust with him, he's already got a solution in place, Esther's already been promoted to Queen Mordecai and the Jewish people who we, we finish in the end of chapter 3 they're in complete confusion thinking they're going to die don't even realize God's already got a solution sitting in the palace in a position to do something about a situation that they cannot control and that's how God works God fights the battles that we cannot fight God wins the wars that we don't even know we're waging God already has something in place a solution a problem before they even knew they had a problem isn't that amazing the way god works like that and god's working the same way in your life romans chapter 8 verse 28 says we know that in all things god works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose so so haman comes along and the amalekites you know once again are are, are, are waging war against god's people trying to wipe them out And he represents these two kinds of attacks in your life, the ones that are your fault and the ones that aren't your fault. And so this morning, I just want to close with this this question to you. What is the Haman in your life right now? What is the attack you're facing? What are you going through that you're dealing with that you have to figure out? Is this something that's related to something I've done? Do I have control over this? Is there something I need to change? Is there something I need to remove to eliminate, to kill in my life? Or is this something where I'm just going to have to sit back and say, God, I don't have any control over what's happening, but I'm going to trust that you, that you do. There are days that we wake up and we feel like we're in the middle of a boat, in the middle of a lake, and there's a storm raging all around us, and we might feel like we're going to die. And at that moment, you can either stand up and throw your hands in the air and scream and yell and say, God, why are you allowing me to be in the middle of a storm? Or you could remember that Christ is still right here with you in the boat. And everything's gonna be okay and even though it might not look like it on the outside might feel like he's sleeping right now but hey he's comfortable enough to take a nap in the middle of the storm because he knows at the end of the day we're gonna survive we're gonna make it it's gonna be alright so this is where Jason picks back up next week helping us to understand that God fights the battles that we cannot fight and I'm going to close with this, this thought before we pray. It's actually something that um, it's exactly the points that I'm making today, and it's called the Serenity Prayer. How many of you guys have heard the Serenity Prayer? I had forgotten, but my wife reminded me that it was hanging in my mom and dad's bathroom for years and years and years. And so I would see it whenever I go to the bathroom, but I forgot it was there. But she remembered. And um, it's a really cool prayer, and it, it, it goes along exactly with what we learn in, in Esther chapter 3. And it says this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. It was written by a guy named Reinhold Niebuhr, and it's a a wonderful prayer with a great biblical background. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can, the wisdom, To know the difference let's pray heavenly father god we thank you for your love for your grace for the opportunity to sit in here this morning god to hear your word god i thank you that as we as we hear from you as we read your word god you are never you're never short on revealing truth to us and helping us to understand that that god in life we will face difficulties we will feel like we're being attacked, we will we will feel like things aren't fair. Father, but you always have shown us throughout the course of your word and throughout the course of my life that as we trust in you, God, you still have a plan. You still sit on the throne. You still are bigger than everything we face. You are still providential. You are still sovereign. God, help us to remember these things in our lives. God, as we face things that are bigger than us, things that we cannot control, help us to remember, God, that you are the source of our strength. God, you are the direction that we need to be facing. God, help us that when we do have an opportunity to be a catalyst for change, God, that we make the right decision. God, help us in those moments when our emotions might overcome us, when we might make a decision based on indignation or anger or love. God, help us to remember, Father, to take a moment to, to pray, to ask you, to look to you to help us to make the right decisions. God, we know you have a plan. God, help us to fit perfectly into your will and into your plan. All heads remain bowed as we kind of close out this morning. We, we try to give an opportunity every week for people who might have been sitting here saying, you know what, I get you when you talk about being attacked. I get you when you say life is unfair. But what I've been missing out on is, is that level of saying, I've got God with me on my side during this. And if that's you, you're sitting here today, and you're saying, you know what, I haven't given my life to Christ no one else is is looking around. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to call you up front or or make you stand up or do anything embarrassing. What we are going to do is just ask you to raise your hand in just a moment to say, I need Christ in my life. And when you do that, all we're going to do is put a a bag in your hands with some information that we feel like will help you take some next steps. So if that's you and you're saying, you know what, I've I've never accepted Christ. I know the storms. I know the attacks. I know those feelings, but I don't know the peace on the other side that comes with trusting God during those times or Maybe you followed him at one point and he kind of walked away or you've drifted and you say, I need to come back to that because I need Christ in my life. All we're going to ask you to do is raise your hand. If that's you this morning, I need Christ in my life. Will you just throw your hand up just for a second and make eye contact with me. And as you do, we've got something to give to you. And we see you. We see you. Just keep it up for a second until they get to you. Anyone else? Anyone else, we won't we won't embarrass you. We won't do anything other than try to stand beside you and say we are with you as you take these next steps. Anyone else that says this morning, I need Christ in my life. All right, Heavenly Father God, we love you, Father. We thank you for your love for your grace. And as we pray this morning, God, I ask that you forgive us of our sins, God. As we say in our own words, God, whatever we've done, we put it in your hands. We ask for you. Father, to, to not only forgive us as we repent, but to help us to turn the other way and to start to follow you in your path and your direction for our lives. We trust these things in Jesus' name. Amen.